0: 1 Corinthians 13 about biblical love. Biblical love. And uh, today, we're we'll going to be looking at selfishness. So I'm going to read. Um, I'm going to start back at the beginning again so you can hear it in context. Uh, some of you all uh, may be uh, new here. and uh, And so I want you to hear the whole passage, or at least a good portion of it, so you can get a grasp on where this is coming from. This is being written to a church that is struggling in their love. They are a selfish church. They want to make much of themselves. They want to bring honor and glory to themselves. And the Apostle Paul writing this letter to them acknowledges that, sees that in them, and wants to give them a corrective and tell them that everything must be done in love. Whatever is not done in love is worthless in the eyes of God. And he doesn't mean just a Um, worldly, culturally acceptable form of love like even we have gotten used to. Uh, He's talking about the love of Jesus Christ who came and modeled this particular kind of love to us specifically at the cross. But even in the way that he lived, Jesus was a man filled with true love. And he demonstrates that for us. And Now the church is supposed to put that on display to the watching world. That's what Paul is writing about here. And so he says to this church, he says, "'If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing.'" If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So again, he is saying that if I do not have genuine love, I can do the best things that the world uh, has ever seen, and they could all applaud me and say how great that I am, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. In the eyes of God, it's as if I have done nothing. So then he goes on to describe what love is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. And this is where we're at this week. It does not insist on its own way. Maybe your Bible says it does not seek its own. And here Paul is saying that love is not selfish. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being able to gather in this place today and we need love shown to us in your word what does it look like what is it not how is it that we have operated in your world in a selfish way I do pray God for conviction we want your word to work in our hearts and work out the sinful tendencies that remain we admit before you that they are still there But you are weakening their power. You have ultimately defeated them at the cross. But in real time, we are seeing the power of sin crushed. And it is through your word as we acknowledge it, as we obey it, as we submit to it, that you defeat sin that still remains in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that today a selfish spirit would be crushed inside of your people here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the American Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson famously wrote these words, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when he said the words unalienable rights. He meant that these rights are natural, that you are born with them, that these have been given to you by your creator. And no man, no government can take them away from you. Life and liberty, I don't think those need a whole lot of explanation, but maybe the pursuit of happiness does. I think that one's a little more vague. And so this week, I looked up like, what is it that Thomas Jefferson meant when he wrote those words? he never wrote on them. He never expounded on what he meant there. As a matter of fact, it seems that he borrowed that language from George Mason, who just the previous month had written the Virginia Declaration of Rights. He said something almost identical in there. But no matter what was intended, it was clear that Jefferson and Mason and others believed that to pursue your own happiness is a natural thing. It's a good thing given to you by God. And now if you know of anything about Jefferson, you do know that he was not very strong on the Bible as the word of God, but here as he speaks about the Lord, he is right. God created us to be happy and to pursue our own happiness. And we might have a tendency to believe that when we become Christians that God wants us to set aside our own happiness for the happiness of others. I need to lessen my happiness so that you can have more of it. That we're no longer really supposed to pursue it. And that if we do so, that is somewhat selfish. But God created us to find happiness alongside of and in the happiness of other people. But there is sin inside of us that spoils our pursuit of happiness. We begin to try to pursue it in a selfish way where it is all about mine and nothing about yours. And that is what Paul says here. Love does not seek its own. That's what he's describing here. Not its own apart from the happiness of other people. That I have to get mine. That I live in a dog eat dog world and I'm going to eat you before you eat me. That's what selfishness is. I've got to get mine. So let's look at a maybe more clear definition of selfishness. What does it mean to be selfish? Selfishness is the pursuit of my happiness with no concern for, or even at the expense of your happiness. I pursue mine, I don't think about yours, and I might even be willing to take from you to gain mine. That's what a selfish spirit does. And unfortunately, I think that we all understand this mindset instinctively. When sin entered the world, the heart, the human heart, did shrink a bit. God made Adam with a large heart to pursue not just his own flourishing, but the flourishing of the whole world. He would have been what we might call big-hearted. He was a big-hearted man, at least for the period of time that he wasn't a sinner. But sin did enter the garden, and then in his own heart, And it shrunk it like an astringent does with the skin. Sin is a spiritual astringent. It makes the heart contract to where it doesn't see beyond itself and it doesn't want to reach beyond itself. Not always completely. Not always totally. There are a lot of benevolent people out there and a lot of benevolent causes In our society, a lot of people doing good, and that good brings them a partial or a fleeting happiness for a period of time, but sin is always there lurking. It's always looking to spoil things, and it does, and it spoils more in some people than in others, but every heart out there and in here has shrunk into itself somewhat, and every heart is selfish because every heart has been infected with sin. And even if we don't readily see this in ourselves, and if I were to ask you this morning, like, hey, please raise your hand if you are a selfish person. You know, I, I don't know how honestly everybody would put their hand up. You'd know you're supposed to because I've already said that every person is selfish. But how many of you all would really know it and put your hand up and say, I know I'm a selfish man? Yeah, I'm a selfish woman, and I can give you examples this week of how I was. I'd say that a lot of folks probably wouldn't be able to do that in complete honesty, but I I guarantee you that you would be able to say that you see it in other people. And I have to imagine that the people who know you best would be able to say, well, I know it about him, and I know it about her. But that's the thing about sin is it causes us to be blind to our own, and we can see it really clearly in other people. And so I do believe that even if we can't readily see it in ourselves, we know it when we see it, don't we? We've probably all watched small children squabble over toys. How many of you all have seen that? Little kids there in the nursery, what do they do? They naturally love to give to the other children their own toys, right? They just can't wait to do it. Like you put them in there and they just go to town loving each other. No, that's not what we see. One child sees another child holding the toy. Her little heart wants it for herself. She walks across the room and she yanks it out of the other child's hands. Mine. That's what we've seen. My happiness over your happiness. Yours doesn't matter in this moment all I know is I want that toy. And she takes it. And so we've seen that, recognize that, correct that. Oh, sweetheart, you don't do that. Don't take that from her. You're supposed to show love to her. <laughs> you know? And her heart knows nothing of that. It just wants what it wants. No questions asked. No concerns about her playmate, mine. And then a fight breaks out, right? That's what happens. They start smacking one another. And small children, they don't make any effort to try to hide their selfishness, do they? They're not concerned about what you're seeing, at least when they're small enough. They get older, they get a little more crafty, you know? And when they get full grown, they get really crafty, like us, right? Now we might not go in, across the room and take from the hands something from somebody else, But we have our ways, don't we? We have our ways of taking what we want with little or no concern about you. And then even justifying it and calling it something clever, maybe something biblical, you know, that's just good wisdom. We have names for these things. We're more civilized than the toddlers, too sophisticated to do what they do. And in fact, our selfishness may be more about what we do not do than what we do do, if you get it. All the ways that we choose not to help or give or sacrifice or serve. All the reasons and excuses that we give for not doing certain things that would be in the pursuit of the happiness of others. We put ourselves above other people. We fear that our happiness is gonna be negatively impacted if we do those things and that's why we don't do them. Well, that's gonna make me unhappy. I'm not gonna like that at all. Again, that's not good wisdom for me. So we refrain from doing those things. We've also picked up some stuff from the culture that we live in that reinforces our selfish impulses. I had something come to mind in the last couple of months. I I read something and was convicted about something I see in myself. The world and the selfishness of my own heart have taught me to always make business deals where I come away as the winner. I've learned the art of the deal, in a sense. I've never really believed in such a thing as a win-win. Really, that's just a mask for lose-lose. That's all that really means. At least in my mind, that's what it has meant. Because a win means that you walk away feeling a lot happier than the other guy. Whether you're buying a car, an appliance, something at a yard sale, it does not matter. And if you don't win, you don't deal. But good business means that it's good for both parties. Both people walk away with what is fair from the deal. And a person acting in love will have that in mind when doing business. It doesn't mean that you won't ever come away with a better deal, because you will. There will be times where that's the case. But it does mean that that is not the only thing that is on your mind. I've often thought that I was doing good business, when in fact I have just been good at being selfish. Selfishness only seeks its own. Mine over yours. And thinking that happiness is found there, only seeking what it desires. And we might think that we'll find happiness at the expense of other people or with no concern for others. But God did not make us, He did not create us to find happiness in that way. And Christ has proven that in the way that He came to live and in the way that He came to die. So let's talk about Christian love. If that's what selfishness is, seeking its own little concern, no concern for other people, or even at the expense of other people, what is Christian love? Because Christian love opposes this kind of thinking. It opposes this mindset or this kind of heart. Christian love is the pursuit of your happiness alongside of my own and even as a means to my own. I want to show you biblically what I mean by that. So that first clause then. Christian love is the pursuit of your happiness alongside of my own. I imagine that many people here this morning could tell us what the great commandment is. What's the greatest commandment according to Jesus, the man who asked Him? Love the Lord your God, With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second? You love your neighbor as yourself. Think about what you're being taught right there. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. And If I were to ask the question again this morning, do you love yourself? How many of you all would raise your hands? I would hope so. Because the Bible here, this command even, takes it for granted that you do love yourself. Now, I don't necessarily mean in the self-esteem kind of way that the world frames this in so often. Do you really love yourself? Do you feel love for yourself? That's not, that's, that's not the point of this right here. The point of what is being communicated here is do you pursue your own happiness? That's how you love yourself. You do What you think will bring you happiness. That is self-love. Regardless of feeling, it is what every person in this room actually does. Nobody here is going to walk out the doors today and go and pursue what brings you misery. It's not going to happen. Today, I'm just not going to eat lunch. I delight in feeling terrible. No. You're going to do what is pleasing to yourself. I imagine that many of you all are going to sit down today at 425 and turn the TV on, maybe at 420 even, 415, a little early so you don't miss anything, right? You're going to sit down and you're going to watch your beloved Bills play. I have to imagine that if you love the Bills, you're probably not going to deny yourself in that moment because you think that's going to make you miserable. Nobody does that. Everybody here pursues what you think will make you happy. Some of you, it might be to turn the TV off. (laughs) A few of you, maybe. So self-love is the pursuit of my own happiness. Everybody in this room does that. And so here, we are being told you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, before I move on, let me give you a quote by Blaise Pascal that actually brings this truth to light. Listen to what he says here. All men seek happiness. Not some men, not most men, not a few men, all men. Everybody in this room seeks their own happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take, the the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. That's a strong statement, isn't it? He's saying that even the man who kills himself is pursuing what he thinks will make him happier. And that makes perfect sense, does it not? You start to dwell on that. He says to himself, it is better or a happier state than to die than to continue like this. So that man, according to Pascal, even though there's something broken in his mind, is loving himself, even though it might not look like it. It's an extreme. But to that point, we all do for ourselves what will make us, or we think will make us, happy. This is self love. So, the command from God, that second command, love your neighbor as yourself, is taking it for granted that we do love ourselves in this way, and we will seek to fulfill this command if we pursue what we also think is best for our neighbor. So to love him or her is to contribute to their happiness in the same way that I want to contribute to my own. And so what you want done for you is what you want done for them. This is love. Does that not start to redefine in some ways what The world thinks of as love, and what the scriptures tell us what love is pursuing my happiness and pursuing yours alongside of it. To love you is to pursue yours. I have to imagine that everybody here wants the best possible housing situation for yourself. Do you not? Wants to be treated fairly in business. Wants enough to eat. Wants clothing on your back and medicine when you're sick. Everybody here wants to be shown kindness. You all want somebody to listen to you without just talking at you. You want to maintain a good reputation. Everyone here wants a friend, or a godly spouse, or godly children, or to be godly yourself. That's what you want for you. And we do pursue all of those things for ourselves that we believe will make us happy. And God is telling us here that genuine love will seek the same for other people. To not just think about what you want, but also to think about what your neighbor, your brother in Christ, what your sister in Christ wants to. Not just wants, but needs. This is what love does. So this is what I mean when I say that Christian love is the pursuit of your happiness alongside of my own not in place of my own that's not what's being taught here love your neighbor as yourself the things that make me happy I delight to give to other people as well it comes alongside of my happiness this is the bare minimum of what love does but we've gotten so used to living as we do in our society because we do not have a culture that values neighbor love. Especially if it means face-to-face interaction. We're growing more disconnected, detached, impersonal as a whole. But this cannot happen within the body of Christ. Helping other people pursue their happiness as I do my own is the beginning of Christian love. So before I get to the last point, I'll ask, how would you assess where you are in this? So as you hold up your love to what the Bible describes as Christian love, How are you doing in loving your neighbor as yourself? Everybody here, I would say, is getting an A in loving yourself, right? Because we all do it. But how are you doing in loving your neighbor like you love you? Pursuing their happiness too. A few people come to mind this week. Because I have to say that our church, from what I do see, does a good job at this. Now, I don't have a godly assessment in any way. God sees everything perfectly, but we're all given eyes, and I do see people within our congregation, many who are actually doing this. And I'm going to embarrass a couple of people, because I'm sure that they probably don't want this to be seen but I want to honor those who deserve some honor. Last week, I think it was last week, I was standing up here with Jim and he was showing me some pictures of his house and a man came over there to help him wire up his house and I'm sure probably tear things apart who has know-how in this and it's Mike Nowak. Mike Nowak loves to help people And he's not asking anybody for anything for any of this. He just delights to help people. And so he comes over to Jim's house and he helps him run wire and Jim tears his whole house apart. And here's a brother in this church who just sees a need. And I I don't think Mike would put it this way. Okay. I don't think Mike would say, well, if I had a house to be wired, I would want somebody to help me too, or I want my house wired. That's exactly what's happening inside of him. He wants his house to have electricity inside of it. And he looks at Jim, who needs his house rewired, and he says, I'm going to do for that brother what I I would do for myself. And so without any fanfare, without anybody else knowing anything, he goes over there and spends his time. That could have been spent elsewhere to make this brother and this sister happy. He pursued their happiness. That is Christian love. I see Linda clapping because I'm going to embarrass Linda too. Because what I've seen is I've, I've seen Linda use her car like I've seen other people here, people like Mel and Barb. You know, Linda uses her car and her time continually to help other people get to places where they need to go. And she and a friend, Carol, who's not here today, went and cleaned a brother's house, Rick Tober, who has cancer. Now, Rick had a need. I thought of them. I knew they'd do it because they have that kind of heart. And Linda delighted to go over there and help out this brother in need. He delighted in having them there. And everybody's heart was filled with joy as they were able to serve or be served. Now again, I don't think Linda was thinking like if my house you know, needed some care, I'd want to find somebody else to help me. I think she just thought like, I want a clean house. This brother needs a clean house. I'm going to go and do it. She pursued his happiness and was willing to serve and give of her time. And I've seen it actually again and again with some other situations too. And there's a lot of that that's going on inside of our church, and that is exactly what is meant here in Christian love. I will love you as I want to be loved too. Just as I will pursue my own happiness, I will pursue yours. And it makes my heart happy to do so. One more thing here. One last step here in the pursuit of happiness. Christian love is the pursuit of your happiness, not just alongside of my own, but as a means to my own. Jesus came to show us a more excellent way. And he raises the standard of what it means to pursue our neighbor's good. He was willing to give more, more than what seemed reasonable. He went above and beyond. We would call that sacrifice. He was willing to sacrifice what rightfully belonged to him. He laid aside certain rights, certain privileges, certain freedoms that he had for the good of other people. When Jesus came to earth, he did not come and exercise all the rights that he had always possessed as God. He still had them. They were there. But for our sake, almost always it seems that he chose not to use them so that he could genuinely live as a human being dependent on the Spirit of God in communion with the Father. And so we read things from time to time in Scripture like Jesus didn't know stuff, or Jesus couldn't work any miracles there. And you're thinking, what are you talking about? He's God. What's being described to us in that moment is Jesus living as a genuine human being like me and you. He was willing to come and set aside certain powers, rights, privileges that he had always had so that he could come and live as one of us, so that he could come and die as one of us. That's what he did. He was God, surely. We know that. Perfectly God. Every moment while he was here on earth. And he had every right to command the worship of every person that he came across while he was here. Everybody should have bowed at his feet. The one who made them, the one who owned them, the one who loved them with an everlasting love was right there in front of them, and they did not. He could have commanded that, but he didn't. It was his right as God. He had every right to judge every sinful person that he crossed paths with, which means he would have judged every person that he, ju- he crossed paths with because they were all sinners. He could have vanquished every evil spirit on earth the moment that he arrived. But what did he do? Instead, he chose to live in relative obscurity, in weakness as a servant, and then die on a Roman cross. He laid aside rights, privileges, and freedoms for us. For what? Our happiness. On the night before he died, this is what he told his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now that sounds just like the old commandment, right? Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of all the law. All those 10 commandments are summed up right there. Love one another. But I'll tell you, Jesus gives an 11th commandment right here. A new commandment I give to you. This is how you love one another. You love one another just as I have loved you. Not just the old way, Not just alongside of my happiness. Do I want to lift you up in happiness too? But you love your neighbor like I have loved you. And how is that? Sacrificially. That's how he loved us. And so he raises the bar here for his disciples, a higher way of love. A love that will lay down its rights in the pursuit of our happiness. And He becomes the model for us in this, and He's going to provide the power for us to do it. Jesus is restoring all of God's creatures, His creatures, to our original design to find our happiness in the happiness of other people, especially in their eternal happiness. You live in the same time I do, and if you've got your eyes and your ears open, you know that standing on your rights is a theme for our time. That's what everybody's getting really good at, aren't they? Standing on your rights, demanding, demanding, demanding all the time, what is mine? And you take from me, I'll crush you. I'll do it online, I'll do it in person. You don't take what is mine from me. Everybody's gotten really good at standing on your rights, never backing down. But not our Savior. And it should not be His church either. He overcame the world this way, not by raw power or might. We might think that this is weakness. I'll just get run over out there. This is not weakness. The world will say that it is, but God will not. His wisdom is above the world's. And to love as Christ has loved is perfect strength. And so could it be that the highest happiness that you can achieve is by living like this? Not by simply trying to live out what you've been taught the American dream is, or maybe what the American dream was generations ago, I don't know. That more things will make me happy, more comforts will make me happy, more space will make me happy, more money, or at least if i just got more than you do, that'll make me happy. And all these things can be wonderful blessings, but our happiness is not wrapped up in them. And could it be that all the misery and unhappiness that we see in society right now is because people who have more wealth and prosperity than any people who have ever lived before them are living at cross purposes with God. Could that be the case? They seek their happiness with little or no concern for their neighbor And they cannot find happiness then for themselves. That there is a famine, a drought of happiness in this land that we live in. And if you've got your eyes open right now, you see that. You have to. I do. And part of my job probably is that I probably see more of it than other people. But everybody can see this. Has there ever been a time when more people have been depressed and dejected and suicidal than live right now. And again, we've got more than any people who have ever lived. Now, I don't have perfect data on that or anything, but I just kind of know the times. And it certainly seems that way to me. And we should expect the world to chase after the wind because that is the wind that they're trying to hold on to. But the church holds the secret for the happiness of Christ. Christ. To have the same kind of joy that he had while he was on earth, he gives us his spirit and his desires and the ability to love as he has loved. And the love of God delights to overflow its banks onto other people. It cannot help it. If you want an example of this biblically, if you would just write this down, Same letter that we're in right now in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9 is written by the Apostle Paul to tell us how he does this in his ministry. His willingness to set aside certain rights that he has for the good of other people. That's exactly what he's telling us there. If you're just reading along in 1 Corinthians, you might think, what is this this talking about? Well, this gives definition to it when you get to 1 Corinthians 13. And not just them, at 1 Corinthians 10:32, and 33, he comes back to this same theme again. He is willing to set aside certain things that he could use for the good of other people. That is Christian love. And what he describes there should be our heart too. But do you know what will keep us from doing what Paul says there or what Paul says here? Fear. We're afraid. God is promising that he will give us an indestructible joy and happiness if we just trust him and begin to pursue our happiness in the happiness of others. He's promising that. But our fear is that we will lose out on our happiness or re- we'll regret Anything that we lay aside or anything that we sacrifice will regret not standing on our rights in that moment. They got the best of me. We'll regret it. If you give something away, like, oh, I'm going to need that later. I need to hold on to it for myself. Fear keeps us from living this out. We're afraid that we will miss out on the blessing that we would have given ourselves. But along the way, we actually miss out on the greater blessing that God would have given to us. His own happiness. This is not a call to starve yourself or to give up your home and live outside in a tent somewhere. But I have read many Christian biographies of great Christians in the past, and I have been struck by how much they gave away, how little they kept for themselves, and they were the happiest people on earth. And if you truly take this to heart, you will find that you cannot give your happiness away. You cannot give your happiness away because God will take your happiness into his own hands. I'm going to close with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. You might have tuned me out 20 minutes ago. But if you can take one thing from this sermon, I would ask that you remember this or that you take pictures of this. Because I think that he sums up everything that I have just said beautifully, perfectly. Almost bring me to tears. And I would just suggest that sometime during this week that you will go back and you will read this again. If you don't get it right now, I hope that you will get it later because it should strike at your heart. This is a promise from God. If you are selfish and make yourself and your own private interests your idol, God will leave you to yourself and let you promote your own interests as well as you can. But if you do not selfishly seek your own, but do seek the things that are Jesus Christ's and the things of your fellow beings, then God will make your interest and happiness his own charge. And he is infinitely more able to provide for and promote it than you are. The resources of the universe move at his bidding, and he can easily command them all to subserve your welfare. So that not to seek your own in the selfish sense is the best way of seeking your own in a better sense. It is the directest course you can take to secure your highest happiness. If you seek in the spirit of selfishness to grasp all as your own, you shall lose all and be driven out of the world at last, naked and forlorn to everlasting poverty and contempt. But... If you seek not your own, but the things of Christ and the good of your fellow men, God himself will be yours and Christ yours and the Holy Spirit yours and all things yours. Wonderful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray today that this church, your people, would look to Jesus Christ, who was the happiest being who ever walked the face of the earth. He lived as a man, like we do. And yet, to an outsider's view, it seems as though he had nothing, and had every reason to be miserable. It looks as though he achieved nothing. He lost everything at his death. But truly, it was at His death and the way that He lived, He gained everything for us. He came and pursued our eternal happiness in the way that He lived on earth and the way that He died on earth. And He is set as a model for us and promises the ability in His people to begin to live as He has done. He gave us a new command to love one another as He has loved us. And I pray, Lord, that we will take this truth, this promise, into our hearts and we'll begin to pursue the happiness of other people, especially here in this church, believing that our God will take our interests, our welfare, our happiness into your own hands. You will supernaturally be a a Enable us to be content in every situation that we are in, to be joyful in every situation that we are in, regardless of what we have in our hands, because we will possess the greatest of all things, and that is Christ, and God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, and all things to come will be ours. We will not be clingers to this world, graspers of this world. Please fill your people with your Spirit, to begin to love as Jesus has loved us, believing this promise. We will be a unique people if that's the case. We will be a strange people if that is the case. And those who watch us will marvel that we can be happy even though we give so much away. Whether it's our possessions or our reputations or our time or our ability, You will take our charge into your hands and we will be the happiest people on earth. For we trust this into your hands to do. We know that only you can do these things. We cannot conjure up this ability. We cannot motivate ourselves to have this ability. But our God can fill us with his spirit to begin to do what you have called us to do. Make us a different people in the world. As pilgrims and travelers here, give us the love of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.